0: We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M A X P O O L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode.
1: The legends are true! Overwhelming power! Sauce of destiny! Yes!
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Thursday, July 27th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, how are you doing?
1: Um, busy, 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 but also ready to talk about some movies and books and stuff.
0: Excellent, yes, yeah. You haven't really been doing much other than just keeping Slash Film... Uh, you know, moving in the right direction and all that. Um, One thing that I have been doing that I wanted to mention really quickly is I had the chance to speak with several uh, Imagineers, Disney Imagineers, about the Haunted Mansion attraction and what makes it so special. The Haunted Mansion movie, I believe, hits theaters technically today, tonight. Uh, And so in, I guess, uh, celebration of that movie's release, which I haven't seen yet, I'm I'm looking forward to to watching it. Um, I, I just wanted to seek out a bunch of Imagineers and talk about why that attraction means so much to them and, and why it actually works as well as it, as it does. So uh, I think that piece turned out pretty well. And that is up on slashfilm.com right now. I linked uh, to it in the show notes. So you can check that out if you are so inclined. If you're a theme park fan, uh, Jacob, I know you're a big fan of theme parks and of the Haunted Mansion specifically. And um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you thought about that piece. Yeah, it's, it's a terrific piece. I really enjoyed reading it. It's one of those cases where.
1: Um, I feel like I know a lot about the Haunted Mansion. Like I've read entire books on that ride and essays on that ride. I never grow tired of reading about it. I, I never feel like there's like a, an end point for the Haunted Mansion. It's just uh, an infinite well of stories and anecdotes and technology going on A thing. Like the, the as, as discussed in your article, uh, it's a ride that was built in the sixties and the sleight of hand used a lot of the, you know, iconic moments of that attraction, uh, hold up today pretty profoundly. And I, it's just an endless source of fascination for people going on, you know, 50 years now. It's, um, genuinely a true piece of American art. And I loved reading your article.
0: I didn't really know much about it, about like the creation of it. And, and so I was kind of surprised to learn talking to these folks about how, like, Originally it was supposed to be this walkthrough attraction, not something where you're sitting, you know, strapped into a seat and and like ridden through it. And then like the idea that it was put on hold for the world's fair, which was like a huge deal for Disney in the, in the fifties and sixties and was like delayed because of that. And then once they figured out, you know, everything going on at the world's fair, they came back to the ride and sort of applied the lessons that they learned from that to, you know, uh, to enhance the haunted mansion to the, the um, best of their abilities. I thought all that stuff was really cool. So anyway, uh, check that out if you're interested in theme park stuff. Um, Jacob, what have you been reading recently? I've read a couple of books since we last spoke. Uh, the most recent ones I'll bring up. Uh,
1: I'm currently reading, uh, I'll have it finished very soon, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli by Mark Seal. As the name implies, this is a book about the making of The Godfather, the Francis Ford Coppola directed classic from 1972. And this is one of the most documented and famous productions of all time. I feel like yours is Everybody who's a film fan knows a little bit about how this movie was made, the legends of it, the clashing egos, the battles over casting, the fact that the actual mafia got involved and tried to stop the film from getting made. It, you know, just a literally legendary film production. Like every Francis Coppola production from the 70s is, has these legendary stories of how, how chaotic it was. Um, and so far, I haven't found any major revelations in uh, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, uh, but this me it's not worth reading. It's, it's fun to have everything sort of in one place as opposed to scattered legends and have, you know, some of the more outrageous stuff be debunked, have some of the conflicting opinions uh, be directly addressed. Like, for example, Francis Ford Coppola... Uh, Paramount head Robert Evans and producer Al Ruddy all take credit for the success of The Godfather and all claim that they're the reason why it's successful. And the book does a really good job of sort of exploring, here's the three different things they said about this one moment and kind of letting you draw your own conclusions. Um, My impression is that Coppola seems to be the one who's actually right most of the time, but that's also me being biased toward an artist. Um, But it's, uh, it's an incredibly entertaining read. And especially after that uh, that miniseries, The Offer, kind of came and went, you know, two years ago on Paramount and Everybody decided it was pretty awful. It's fun to have the narrative of The Godfather genuinely laid out uh, for you know future posterity because uh, I feel like there's a lot to be learned about why the film was successful and the choices that were made to make it successful. And it's just an incredibly breezy read too. It, it just it doesn't waste your time. Um, Mark Seal is a Vanity Fair reporter. He's been doing it for decades, so he just has a He makes it look easy. He makes writing about film production look easy. And I found this to be an incredibly entertaining, hard to put down book. Even when I was familiar with the details, uh,
0: I found the way it was constructed to be very much worth my time. That's awesome. I want to tease something. I'm not going to say exactly what it is, but I would highly encourage listeners of this podcast to visit SlashFilm.com tomorrow because we have a big article that's going up about a very, very popular movie. And uh, we sort of broke down a bunch of different moments from that movie. And we were talking behind the scenes about it. I'm going to be vague here. Just about how, like, looking at th- this totemic movie and and breaking it down into its component parts and really examining uh, certain s- micro-specific aspects of it gave us all, uh, everyone who contributed to the article, a greater appreciation of this pop culture behemoth. And I'm curious if this book, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, did that for you and The Godfather, Jacob, because as you mentioned, The Godfather, like, operates, it, it holds such a place in our collective imagination. And I'm wondering if reading about it in this level of detail made you um, stop thinking about it as this, like, sort of holy relic and made you think about it as, like, a a story that was told. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just... um
1: the little stories are what stand out to me. The, the idea that the, that the Godfather could have been terrible and you start to understand that uh, what Coppola brought to it and his instincts and his cast and what they all assembled to like, <laughs> they all brought this lightning in a bottle to it and it makes and like the, the alternate universe version of the Godfather, which, you know, starred non Italians. It was directed by somebody who wasn't Coppola and was made super cheap and was set in the nineteen seventies and was intended of like, you know, really cash on success of a popular novel, as opposed to being, you know, a three hour epic about, you know, family and lineage and uh American royalty and capitalism and entrepreneurship. That was all stuff that Coppola brought to the movie, uh, and was essentially told, You're crazy, what's this all about? Um, and <laughs> kind of had to fight for it. I mean, the, the chapter doing with the casting on the movie, for example, Ben um, eight months before production starts, Coppola says he wants Robert Duvall, Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, uh, and James Caan in those four roles that they would eventually get. He spends five hundred dollars on a um on on a on a, on some test footage to, to show them in the parts. And Paramount is so aptly opposed to them that it spent four hundred twenty thousand dollars auditioning other people until they go back just casting them anyway. Um, so it just, wow. it, it gives you a genuine appreciation. For the kind of fuckery that goes on behind the scenes of any movie, let alone a, a classic movie, it makes you appreciate just like this stuff. When magic happens, it it's truly working against the odds mm-hmm. on, on any great movie. And, and I think that's the biggest takeaway from this is that it would have been so easy for The Godfather to be bad, or for <laughs> James James C-Con to play Michael instead of Sonny, which almost happened. It came it came with like within spitting distance. Um, so it's just. I don't know if if you are remotely interested in like the, the the nuances of like how a masterpiece gets made this is a, this is a very very entertaining read. Excellent. So that's called Leave
0: the Gun Take the Cannoli
1: by Mark Seal. What else have you been reading, Jacob? Another uh film industry centric book that I recommend although it's not nearly as fun to read and that is a Burn It Down by Maureen Ryan. Maureen Ryan is a uh TV journalist. She's been writing about TV for as long as I've been alive uh since the 90s and uh this book is her big investigative journalistic look into the state of Hollywood writer's rooms and sets and with an emphasis on TV, but it goes into the film as well about how um, brutal, unfair, harsh, uh, discriminatory, sexist, racist uh, Hollywood is. And you no, know, of course the book also discusses, you know, the sets and the shows that aren't and are in, uh, that and are well run and take care of their people. But the book is largely about how systemic it is. That if you want to work in Hollywood and you are not a white man with connections, you are going to suffer through hell. And she brings the receipts. She has, you know, hundreds of interviews with people, uh, both who go on the record with their actual names and those who don't. And it's a extremely harrowing read. It's very upsetting, very illuminating. Uh, if you want a taste of it, they published a chapter from it uh, in Vanity Fair, uh, where she works. Uh, the chapter about the uh, writer's room at lost a show i deeply love and was not aware until this book that uh the lost writer's room was a absolute quagmire of racism sexism and people being harsh and horrible to each other uh and dame lindelof is in the book um essentially on the record trying to come to terms with the with, with the room and the, and the set and how people were treated whereas carlton cues uh declines to participate entirely
0: um and it's- yeah, he sort of like answers through representatives and kind of like denies a lot of things. And it's really illuminating to see the the difference in responses that Q's and Lindelof take because they were like the, the two primary showrunners and like like became celebrities because of their involvement with that show basically it became name brands. And yeah, it's just really interesting to see Lindelof like actually try to grapple with some of that stuff and, and Lindelof or I'm sorry and Q's basically just kind of like brush it off.
1: Yeah, and so if you want to get a taste of what this book feels like, uh that's a good way to go to seek out before you buy it. There's a similar chapter about um the production of Sleepy Hollow, the four season, you know, uh horror fantasy procedural from uh from about ten years ago. And I was I was vaguely aware that things were going wrong on that show. I was not aware of how much it was built on racism and how much it was built upon extremely clueless, um clueless at best and um malicious at worst uh producers. Uh, not taking care of the black actors in their cast and how that led to the show's downfall Um, like i said it's not fun stuff but it's necessary stuff and if you care about the film industry if you care about tv if you care about the stuff you should read it if i could force a video slash writer and editor to read it uh, i would i can't but they should (laughs) that's (laughs) burn it down by marine ryan okay uh and you've been reading one other thing as well yeah, um I read Episode thirteen by Craig DeLouis. This is a uh, a horror novel. It's fiction. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. It uh it's an it's an epistolary novel, meaning that it's it's uh written in the form of, you know, uh found documents. Uh but usually when you when you read like an epistolary novel like Dracula, which is written in the form of, you know, um of all the characters' journals, or you read um uh an HP Lovecraft horror story from the twenties where a character is writing a suicide note and they explain, you know, here's why I'm killing myself. I saw all these monsters, etc. Um Uh, Episode thirteen really tries to update the epistolary novel in a really interesting way by becoming literary found footage. It is a uh, like more so than like you know a a found letter or a found diary or a found journal like you've seen in in horror novels like this in the past. It's about a ghost hunting reality show that goes to a uh, supposedly very very haunted house that once uh, uh, housed scientists in the seventies who were conducting experiments on the supernatural. And it's written as blogs, uh, like that the, the, the uh, producers and, and cast members write um, on, on the show's official website. Hmm. It's written as uh, text messages between um, various characters who are texting each other between shooting. It is written as as a footage doc where somebody's broken down the footage and is you know has written it down, um, uh, like descriptions of footage, dialogue transcription. So you're essentially w- w- reading a you know transcription of all these documents on all the footage as well as you know certain, like there's a cool section where like you see like. Uh, the the sound editors like layout of, of his screen to see like you know what what, what they captured sound stuff uh, on a particularly, you know bad night of ghost mm-hmm. hunting and it's not one of those things where it feels one hundred percent convincing you never you never read it to be like oh I'm actually reading an actual found document but if you really enjoy like found footage horror movies like I do and kind of want that you know that like thrilling immediacy of that uh, in literary form. I think Craig Dooley does a really good job with this. And I'd say like as a, maybe a smidge of a slow start, like the first 50 pages or so I wasn't sure I was, I was on board. Uh, but once it kicks in, I couldn't put it down. Like literally was up to like 3 a.m. one one night, just saying one more chapter, one more chapter, one more chapter <laughs> because it reads like a screenplay because you're reading footage descriptions and inter- intersposed with, you know, blog entries and inter- intersposed with, you know, text message exchanges or like emails, like, like, like every so often something really extreme will happen. And then, then, like there'll be an email from the studio, from the from the network being, "Wow, this is pretty crazy footage. You should keep filming." <laughs> you know, so it's. So. <laughs> um, I found this to be an incredibly entertaining book, uh, and if you're, like I said, if you like found footage, this is 100 your read. This is like that encapsulated, a good one of those encapsulated into a book. But if you just like horror stuff, you like a
0: really good creepy horror novel, it also works on that level. So that's called Episode 13 by Craig De Um it, What you're describing. Sounds similar, but not the same, but similar, kind of similar to this book called S from, I think it was 2014. Have you ever read this book, Jacob? Have we talked about this before? Um, Doug Dorst wrote it and JJ Abrams came up with the idea for it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have a copy of it. I've never actually cracked it open. So oh, please go man. on. It's one of my favorite books because it's so much fun. It's, it's like you open this book and it's written by a fictional author and uh, in the margins of the book characters, um, a a male and a female character are reading the book and passing uh, and writing notes to each other and then returning it to the library. So the next person can check it out. So there's all sorts of, and they pass notes to each other and like, um, this big mystery sort of, um, blows up from there and they're trying to find the author of the book who's this mysterious uh, hermit and they they think they've unlocked this big conspiracy and there's all these like cool little interactive elements of the book like you, you flip a page and like suddenly a napkin from a diner will fall out where they've like drawn a map to a thing and it's just this really really cool sort of um, metatextual experience and, and it has that immediacy that you're talking about it's, it's not the same it's not presented in the same way exactly but uh, it has that sort of like extra factor that, uh, that you don't get from most books that it just sort of reminded me of that. So I would encourage everybody out there to seek out S I thought it was like a really, really cool experience. And it actually, I think I can credit that book with helping me get back into reading because for a long time, I just like read whatever I, what I, uh, whenever I was assigned, you know, in school and stuff. And I kind of like lost the joy of reading, but reading that book, I think helped unlock how much fun it can be to just like sit down and read a book again. So um, uh, yeah, that book means a lot to me. And I I think uh, it's just a really, really cool experience. So if you have a copy of it, especially Jacob, I would encourage you to like add that to the next thing in your, in your reading pile.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My my reading pile is still, I, I started keeping my reading pile on my nightstand to remind me, like, of the books I need to read next. And it's uh, actually, for the first time, below, like, 10 books. So I need to... Um, maybe I'll restock it with that next.
0: <laughs> Excellent. All right, so let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back to talk about what we've been watching. All right, so actually, Jacob, since I was just talking, wh- why don't you take the lead here? Tell me what you've been watching recently.
1: Yeah, I just want to talk about Star Trek Strange New World Season 2. <laughs> 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 uh, it, it's... It's it's incredible, Ben. It's I, I've talked about it before. This first season, it's it's the Star Trek. It's uh it's the such it become the crown jewel of Paramount Plus for me. It's the reason this is routed Paramount Plus. It is the show that follows Captain Christopher Pike and the crew of the Enterprise before Kirk. He's technically the second captain of the Enterprise. Kirk is the third. If you want to go by full Star Trek canon, and it's set you know about ten years ish before Kirk is uh, captain of the Enterprise, and it's um was the best Star Trek in 30 years in season one. Can continues to be the best Star Trek in 30 years in season two. It is standalone. Epi- it does it does that Mad Men thing I love, Ben, where uh, each episode is a standalone adventure that wraps up entirely. It's his own self-contained short story, but character development and character relationships continue to evolve and get honed over those episodes. So even you, know, you can watch an episode by itself and enjoy it entirely, but, be character development in each episode so you, you build it's a collection of short stories that build toward a, a bigger whole which is increasingly my favorite type of television the one that embraces serialization but also is completely unafraid to like wrap up a story in, in you know three acts mm-hmm. in the course of an hour uh season two is just like it's real classic trek in the way it bounces between uh really serious high-minded sci-fi action and adventure comedy um most recent episode, I guess the most recent episode came out today, but the one last week was the uh, much-ballyhooed crossover episode between Strange New Worlds and the animated uh, Star Trek Lower Decks series, uh, which was a friggin' triumph. It was absolutely wonderful, and it, it pulled off the idea of anime characters becoming live-action in a live-action show uh, beautifully, and it did and it, did it by, while while becoming, well, while being true to tr- Star Trek, while also using the opportunity to really poke fun at Star Trek in ways that never felt like it was mean, mean-spirited. It was just uh, I'm... And next week is a musical episode. I mean, the, 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 <laughs> this week's episode is a pretty, se- is a very serious uh, war diplomacy episode, and next week is the um, surprise musical episode where some kind of space shenanigans cause by the dance and sing for the episode, uh, which for me is like, that's what Star Trek is. If, if, if Star Trek in the 60s was a weird musical episodes could be a thing, they would have done it, because Star Trek original series in the 60s is the most bonkers TV show ever made, and I love the Strange New Worlds has thoroughly embraced the the, Im, the the infinite possibilities of Star Trek and season 2 is just going for it. It is um it's my favorite show of the past few years. Um the only sci-fi show for sure that comes close to it is Andor. And Andor maybe Andor is a better show overall than Strange New Worlds, but Strange New Worlds is my favorite show right now mm. and I I find it to be just I don't want to call it comfort food watching, because comfort food watching implies that it's disposable, and it's not. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's the most fun show out there, but it's a reminder that Star Trek is as vital as it ever has been. And it, it is disappointing as Star Trek Discovery often was, and Star Trek Picard was hit and miss, Stranger Worlds, for me, represents every single thing that Trek can be and should be. So yeah, if you haven't watched it, go watch it. If you're not a Star Trek fan, I, I tell us everybody to watch them. If you don't think you're a Star Trek fan, try Stranger Worlds. It may be a Star Trek that you love. Everybody has their first Star Trek. Everyone has Star Trek that, 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 that like, so they learn to love if they're going to be a fan. And I think the Stranger Worlds is super accessible and incredibly fun and easy to jump into. There's a little bit of baggage from Star Trek Discovery in the first episode because it is technically a off from that show. But after that first episode, it's literally 100% its own thing. and. If you if you want to prepare people who say like I would love to get into Star Trek, but there's there's 800 episodes. Where do I start? This is where you start. (laughs) This is where you start. Ten episode seasons, no baggage required. Magical stuff, genuinely magical. Ben, truly.
0: Yeah. I, my parents got Paramount plus recently and shared their password with me, which is like the only streaming service that I don't pay for and have access to now all of a sudden. So, uh, I'm, and that was like the big thing that was keeping me from checking this out. Cause I was just like, I just don't want to subscribe to another thing. But now that I have access to Paramount plus, I might actually check this out. I, d- I dropped off of lower decks a little bit because I just like ran out of time with my screeners. Um, they, they were giving me screeners at, at a certain point just because, uh, I tried that show and really enjoyed it because I, I watched all of the Star Trek movies like years and years ago, um, but I've never seen any of the shows except for uh, Lower Decks, which is that animated comedy that you mentioned earlier. Um, but yeah, Strange New World sounds like a really good next step for me. And especially with the idea that there was just this crossover episode with the Lower Decks characters. Uh, it sounds like I would get a lot out of that. So um, yeah, I'll have to to add this one to my list as well.
1: Yeah, I would, e- I would even recommend just watching the crossover episode to give you, cause it gives a good flavor of both shows. There is some recurring character stuff. There is some like um, character development that, that's carried over from previous episodes in it, but otherwise you, you could easily watch it and enjoy it on its own and then jump back and watch the rest of the show. Excellent.
0: All right. Uh, so we've been talking a lot, uh, as we should, about Barbie and Oppenheimer, Jacob. Like the big uh, movie events of twenty twenty three so far, I would say it's probably fair to characterize them that way. And uh, yeah, what did you think about these two movies? It says here you wanted to just chime in on Barbie and Oppenheimer.
1: Yeah, I think Barbie and Oppenheimer is great, and I love that they're essentially movies about the same thing. They're Barbie and Oppenheimer are both films about irresponsible use of power and how we use it to, to, to shape or reshape our world, uh, which I think that nobody saw coming. I, I love that we all were like. We all celebrated Barbie Oppenheimer or Barbenheimer because it was a really, really fun day with two very different movies from very divergent filmmakers who were both, you know, incredible artists. Uh, but I was pleasantly surprised by how both films seem to have the same thing on their mind, which uh, made it a little more magical. And seeing these movies, I didn't see them back to back. I watched them, of course, two days, uh, Oppenheimer on a Thursday and Barbie on a Friday. And... Seeing the excitement about these movies, people lining up literally and, and Oppenheimer 70 millimeter show is being sold out for weeks uh, and Barbie going to be a billion dollar grocer uh, while pissing off all the right people. Um, it's a real movies are back thing. And I'm the kind of person who likes superhero stuff. I like The Flash. I mean, I, I like Ant-Man 3, for God's sake. But <laughs> the fact that the, the the two biggest films of the year are Greta Gerwig's latest uh, Feminist dramedy, uh, fantasy feminist dramedy, and Christopher Nolan's three-hour-long World War II biopic, it is... I feel so much hope. I mean, we'll see how the studios react. The studios are currently run by largely by idiots who don't know how to deal with their talent, as we've mm-hmm. seen by various strikes. But the fact that audiences made it clear, we want this. Please give us this. You know, this artist-driven... Um, Artist driven films that have the spectacle of like a superhero movie, but are a World 2 biopic in a feminist fantasy dramedy. Um, wow. Like, I feel so good about the future as long as people take the right lessons from this. Like, mm-hmm. the right lesson is not what Mattel is saying. Mattel's out there in the press, like, about how they're going to make the, the, you know, Lena Dunham's making a Polly Pocket movie. Who cares? No one cares about Polly Pocket because Polly Pocket has nothing on Barbie. People are, Barbie's known worldwide. Polly Pocket's going to be a money. Sink. There's no reason to make that movie anyway. Anyway, um, the lesson here is put talented people in charge of movies that are actually really good and sell them really well and get people excited. That's that's the lesson here. <laughs> it's not, as easy as that. <laughs> not make Mattel movie. Not not make a thousand more Mattel movies. Um, but we'll see if it pays off. All I know is that when when in our line of work, you can obviously t- know, you feel the same, Ben. It's really really hard to get jaded and kind of get over movies for a bit. Like, this is why I really, really encourage people who work in the industry to have more than one hobby. I, I Go play board games, uh, go read a bunch, go to an art museum, um, pick up a sport, pick up a S, do something else that can occupy attention because eventually you will burn out in movies. You'll get sad and distressed and angry about movies and want to be over movies. Yeah. And I think this, this happens a few times a year to me. It, it's unavoidable um but i am my batteries are so thoroughly recharged at the proper topheimer and i'm like yeah bring on movies movies, movies
0: all movies all, all over again let's do it <laughs> and that's a really really good feeling i love that feeling it's so awesome yeah um i got that feeling watching a few movies uh that i will talk about now um i'm 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 not, I don't want to talk about it yet, but I'm reading Cinema Speculation, Quentin Tarantino's book, uh, the nonfiction book that was released last year. And a lot of it is like him talking about different movies from the 70s and why they're important and why they meant a lot to him. And he talks about Dirty Harry and Bullet and... Um, taxi driver and like a lot of things that I've seen, but I peeked ahead a little bit because I was like, huh, if he's going to be talking about movies in this this level of detail, I want to watch these movies to know. So I I basically like understand fully what he's talking about here. And there were two movies that he listed that I had not seen. Um, there might be another one that I need to get to, but the the two that I watched are uh, rolling thunder and sisters. Um, have you ever seen either of these movies, Jacob?
1: I've seen them both projected, but like a decade ago. Wow. Back when the draft, back when the, back when the draft house used to more regularly have, uh, in Austin, used to regularly have more esoteric programming. Um, but it's been a long time for both.
0: Yeah, so Rolling Thunder came out in 1977. It's directed by John Flynn, and it stars William Devane, who is this character actor who has been in a ton of stuff. You definitely know him if you saw him. And uh, he plays a prisoner of war who comes back from Vietnam. And um, you know how like like Rambo is actually... Uh, not what a lot the first Rambo is not really what a lot of people think it is. It's this actually like really genuinely brilliant like serious uh, drama about the psychological after effects of, of being in a war and what that you know coming back to America feels like and felt like at that time and all that. Um, This movie Rolling Thunder is kind of that but like pulpier. Um, The lead character played by William Devane comes back and uh, through a series of events, his his family is murdered, and he just like goes on this revenge spree. And he's he's maimed his uh, he basically like loses his hand and has it replaced by a um, like a prosthetic hand with a hook on it. So the imagery in this movie is very striking. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones, a young, young Tommy Lee Jones, which you never really see in movies anyway, or I don't, uh, played a supporting role in this movie. So it's basically like Devane and Tommy Lee Jones sort of like going on this, uh, <laughs> I guess, like on this uh, revenge rampage to to take their revenge on the, the people who murdered Devane's character's family. Um, so that's like the, the very basic pitch of this movie. But uh, yeah, I had that feeling of like, movies are back like, man, this is great. I mean, even though this came out in 1977, it was just like Paul Schrader co-wrote the screenplay. And it just felt like, um, you know, they certainly don't make movies like this anymore. And it just felt uh, energizing to watch something like this, that that definitely felt like it came from a person instead of a committee. It, felt, it feels like a movie with a point of view and something to say and like a, a righteous burning anger underneath it um, that also... Wants to just like be this sort of fun exploitation type of movie. So, um, what, what are your memories of Rolling Thunder, Jacob? Do you have any? Uh, that's exactly the kind of movie
1: Quentin Tarantino would have watched and loved. It is a yeah. very nasty, strange, very 70s kind of movie. The uh, kind of really low, uh, low fi, adult driven thriller that has largely vanished in recent years. It's very, it's the. If you want a, the best kind of bad time, I remember <laughs> Rolling Thunder uh, footing that bill pretty well.
0: Yeah, um, Sisters came out in 1972, and this was directed by uh, Brian De Palma, and Margot Kidder plays uh, a pair of conjoined twins who have been separated. And the movie starts with her perspective, and she meets this guy, and they have dinner, and go out on this, you know, on this date, and they go back to her place, and uh, they have sex, and then the next morning he is murdered in her apartment building. And then the film does this interesting thing of cutting to the perspective of a neighbor from across the, the apartment complex who can see into that window and witnesses the murder. And this neighbor is a reporter and there's some split screen stuff going on because it's Brian De Palma. Of course there is. He's like super into that sort of, um, you know, stylized uh, nature of filmmaking. And then there's also like a ton of voyeurism themes and Hitchcock and, and all of that, that very much infuses a lot of De Palma's work. Um, And the movie is about this reporter basically saying like, Hey, I saw this murder happen in this window. Very, very much like a a shout out sort of homage to rear window. And I know that there's something going on in here. And it's this, uh, this oppressive sense of like when, when she gets the, when she finally convinces the cops to go into that apartment, everything seems normal. And, uh, it's the sense of like something is going on god damn it the system is is oppressing me in this way it's i'm being gaslit I, I know that i what i saw and i'm trying to spend the rest of this movie proving what i saw is real um and jennifer salt plays the reporter and margot kidder is really really wonderful as um uh, the at least one person one one pair of this uh, conjoined twins i thought she was like terrific. This is the best performance that I've seen her give. Um, and, and I really enjoy her Lois Lane in the, in the Superman movies. So, um, yeah, I, I, just like was very bowled over by this movie. It goes to some pretty gnarly places. And, uh, I'll just say that if you liked, um, wow, God, what was this name? Uh, James Wan made the movie, uh, Malignant. If you liked Malignant, uh, go back and watch Sisters because I think you'll find a lot to enjoy. There, um, do you have any any memories about sisters, Jacob? Uh,
1: that's the Palma, as uh, the Palmiest, uh, for better and worst. I definitely, <laughs> uh, for anybody out there who um, wants some Gonzo 70s
0: cinema, it's it's must watch. So I, I guess continuing on in the seventies uh, cinema trend that I was on, I watched Coffee and Foxy Brown two. Um, Pam Greer movies that I'd never seen. And Foxy Brown, I think is probably the more famous of the two. Uh, but Coffee, I think I liked a little bit better. It came out a year before and it was written by, written and directed by Jack Hill, the same guy who directed, uh, written, wrote and directed both of these movies. And they're both like, um, you know, blaxploitation, uh, essentially revenge movies. Uh, I think in, the, in Coffee, Pam Greer's character is looking for revenge against a, a, heroin dealer who basically caused her sister to get addicted to drugs. And then in Foxy Brown, she's looking for revenge for, uh, some drug dealers and, and, um, you know, uh, fancy people basically like, like, uh, I don't know what you would call them. Um, uh, basically like gangsters in suits who end up murdering her boyfriend. So she's, she's out for revenge for that. And I think, uh, you know, I watched, both of these movies on Turner classic movies. So they came with the, uh, the Ben Mankiewicz intro and he was actually speaking with Pam Greer, looking back at that, her experience making these movies. So I appreciated that extra context that those uh, wraparound intro or uh, interviews gave me, but he mentioned like this basically started the idea of the female action hero. Like it did not exist in cinema really before coffee came out in 1973, um, which is kind of crazy to think about, but uh yeah, it was just really cool to watch both of these movies and think about how cathartic it must've been, um, to, to watch these at that time period when, you know, the seventies are, are kind of known as this, uh, this period of paranoia and like the, the, um, movies that, uh, Alan J. Pakula made, you know, um, Clute and the Parallax view and all these movies about, uh, and all the president's men and, and, Films about like uh, societies and systems sort of, um, you know, institutions like uh, failing the American public and people having to take things into their own hands to get things done and all that, all, all of that stuff is sort of like boiling underneath the surface of these movies. Um, so they feel very much like 70s movies in that way. But there's also like a ton of fun uh, to be had in in watching them. So um, yeah, I would, I would recommend both of these. Um, have you seen either of these films by any chance, Jacob? Yeah, a long time ago in
1: Galaxy Far, Far Away, I uh, wrote for Movies.com, the now defunct film website, and I did a massive article where I explored blaxploitation films for the first time, and I watched a good dozen of them for the article, and uh, I remember these two being some of the the standouts, uh, extremely entertaining,
0: uh, they, they hold up. Yeah, and Pam Greer was just like so good. She just, you know, she she really like burst onto the scene and she talked in the in the wraparound interviews about how she didn't really know what she was doing as a performer, and like a lot of people were responsible for her becoming the star who you know, she was giving a lot of props to the people who did like the hair and makeup and clothing and and costume design and all that kind of stuff, because that those were like big elements of her character. But I, I think she was being fairly humble there because she she actually just has that, that sort of it factor, that compelling presence that really just makes you not want to uh, tear your eyes away from anything she's doing on screen. So, um, one other quick thing that I wanted to mention about Foxy Brown, because I'd never seen it before as the movie opens, it does the exact same, uh, stylistic opening as super bad, where, uh, you see the sort of, um, silhouettes of a character dancing around to different music and a lot of, uh, a lot of colors going on. And the song that the theme song to Foxy Brown is playing in the background and the phrase super bad is spoken as lyrics in that song. And I was like, Oh, that's where they got this, <laughs> the, the title for super bad. <laughs> and, uh, and the entire idea for like the style of that opening credits. I never once thought about why super bad was called super bad. Like I, I, for some reason, it just completely went over my head. I just never even considered why that movie was referred to, you know, chose that title. And then seeing this, I was like, oh, that's very clearly why they did this. Somebody was just watching this movie and thought that that would be cool. So I just want to give a shout out there. Um, The last thing that I saw was this um, fairly disposable movie from 1936 called The Preview Murder Mystery, um, which I just thought was a fun setting for a movie. It's set at a movie studio. And the idea is, a big movie is about to come out, and the lead actor gets a note that says, "You won't survive to see this movie actually hitting theaters." And uh, everybody, you know, sort of freaks out about it. He's he's very worried about it, obviously. And they get the cops to, you know, go in the theater as they do the big preview screening. And sure enough, he's actually killed right before the end credits. And then a bunch of other people who are making the movie, the the female lead. And I think the director receive notes saying like, you're, you're next basically like this guy, this mystery person is going to be picking off members of, uh, of the cast and crew of this film. And so the premise is they, they lock the studio gates and keep hundreds of people inside the studio as a detective figure is trying to figure out who was doing all this. And while all of this is happening, uh, the studio executives are like, all right, well, we're all here. So let's keep making movies. So like a bunch of people on different sound stages overnight, you know, one in the morning as these detectives are trying to figure out this crime are just continuing to make movies. So it's a really cool look into what movie making looked like in the mid 30s. Um it's very like almost documentary-ish in, in certain aspects. Um, but it really, yeah, I think a lot of it was shot on the Paramount lot and it just gives you this cool look at, you know, the snapshot of like what making movies at, in the mid thirties was actually like. Um, and the movie itself is like, you know, fairly fun. There's some cool little moments and stuff here and there, but it's not not one that I'll really like remember for the story or the characters or anything. It's more just the vibe and the, the setting that I thought were notable. So uh, the preview murder mystery is what that's called. And I think you can watch it if you have, direct tv stream like i do you can probably search for it through there otherwise i don't think it's streaming on any of the major platforms but uh, i just wanted to give that that movie a quick shout out um anything else that you wanted to mention here jacob or are you all good
1: oh i'm, I'm all good i mean uh, i guess very briefly in what we've been playing section i thought we we're talking about resident evil 4 which i finally beat but i don't have anything
0: to add other than it's it's a, it's a pretty good resident evil Four remake you should play it Okay. Uh, excellent. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about a lot of the things that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The Slashfilm Show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.